0: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm John Timmons, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast.
0: We often take journeys, some physical, others metaphorical. I can think of many in my own life from doctor to podcaster, from single person to husband to father, from wage earner to financial independence. I have yet, however, to set off on the open road by myself, just me and the miles ahead, to move out of the intellectual and bask in the physical, to hit the road running and not turn back. John Timmons bought a 2003 Kawasaki KLR 650 motorcycle for $3,000 off a cop in Pincher Creek, Alberta. He was 24 years old with the dream of one day making an epic trip. That bike would carry him thousands of miles on a journey that both would span years as well as continents. John, welcome to Earn and Invest. In your email to me, you wrote that you asked yourself the question, if not now, then when as an impetus to embark on this epic motorcycle trip, tell me about what was going on in your life at the time.
1: Hmm. I guess a number of things sort of came to a head at that point in my life. I've been working drilling rigs in northern Alberta, drilling for oil and gas and condensate and what have you for, I guess, closing in on 10 years. You know, I was kind of overstretched in my career. I wanted to do this trip for some time. I was waiting for a contract to be finished before I finally got a break. The, The price of gas had dropped dramatically. And we were one of the last few rigs working through this contract. So everyone else was at home while I was working. And it was a long stretch to get past it. So that winter was was really rough for me i had a failed relationship two of my friends died separately because of cancer and we also had a death on site during a rig move one of the pieces of equipment came loose from a truck and struck an oncoming vehicle and i found that that really difficult to deal with you know when you when you work 84 hours a week in a high stress work environment you don't really have time to to deal with the emotions that sort of arise in your life and so i found that the more time i spend on the rig my emotions kind of get stacked and it's almost like getting injured and you don't have the time to heal. Right. So because I worked so long into the point when everyone else was sitting at home and I was still working, I finally found myself (laughs) sitting in my apartment, full blown alcoholic, just, you know, in, in, in quite a depression. So at this point, you know, I had bought my apartment some years earlier. It got to the point now where if I rented it out, the rental would cover the cost of the mortgage. I had this motorcycle downstairs that I've been sitting down there for I think five years now. Waiting for this this trip, and I just kind of thought, well, you know, if now is not the point, not if this point where I'm depressed, you know, out of work, single, if that's not a good time to take take this trip, I figured then there's, I just won't take it. So, I decided to spend the next six months outfitting my motorcycle, researching what I could on on the trip, and just putting one foot in front of the other and and moving in that sort of direction.
0: They say when you embark on a long journey, you're doing one of two things: you're either running away from something. Or running towards something, which do you think you were doing?
1: Mm. Yeah, that's tough because it it was a dream that I'd had for a number of years to to do this trip. And so in some respects, I was running towards that. I found so long as I was on the road and I was moving forward and dealing with all the problems coming at me from the front, I didn't have to deal with all the pain that that I was dealing with sitting on my couch in my living room in Vancouver. So I guess it's a little bit of both. I was running towards my dream, but also running away from the things that I had to deal with.
0: I want to talk more about that pain and how you probably ended up dealing with it anyway on the road. But before we get there, let's talk about the bike in the first place. When did you buy it? And did you know that this was going to kind of be the plan? Like, did you buy it saying, I'm going to take this epic journey someday?
1: No. Well, when I was 22, I went to Brazil and I was in Sao Paulo and I saw a Honda Falcon motorcycle. It's just a little 250 thing, but I'd never seen an Enduro in my life. And so it kind of sparked a sparked an idea that I'd fly down to Sao Paulo, Brazil, buy a Honda Falcon and drive it back up. But, you know, life gets in the way, right? You get a job, you get a mortgage and, and things kind of stack on top of one another. And so my friend bought a KLR, KLR 250, my, actually my roommate. And the day before I left for work, he asked if I wanted to jump on his and I was so enamored by it. <laughs> so I jumped on it, I rode around and I was so enamored by it that I got halfway through my hitch was, a, I think was a two or three week hitch. And I called him up and said that I want to buy one. And sure enough, he had one already picked out for me.
0: When you say two or three week hitch, are you talking about, did you do a short trip on his bike just to kind of check it out?
1: No, sorry. A hitch is when you go up to work on the drilling rigs. They do like typically 14 Ah. days on, seven days off. And when you go up, it's uh, a, you call it a hitch. So, yeah. So I went to work for two or three weeks. I forget which. And I called my friend and he had one already picked out. So I got back. I borrowed his truck and I drove the four hours down to Pinter Creek, Alberta, where there's a cop who, who who had his old bike, his old uh, trail riding bike for me to, for me to pick up off of him.
0: And when you made this decision that, okay, I'm going to make this journey, you kind of said the time is right. If not now, then when it wasn't immediate though, right? You had to like work on the bike for six months, prepare yourself for the trip, et cetera, before you were ready to go.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, the bike had been sitting downstairs for man, close to two years without me really touching it much. You know, I, I drove it down to L.A. at one point, like a few years earlier, and it burned, I think, a liter of oil every thousand kilometers, which is pretty substantial. So I had to re- I put a whole new like a what they call a racing kit. So I had the cylinder board out, placed the piston, valves, cam chain, a whole bunch of stuff inside there. I didn't do all of it, but I did as much as I could, as well as things like crash bars. I bought some hard panniers to keep all my luggage in so I could lock it up safe. Yeah, I guess that's pretty much the extent of it, but it took me took me a little while to get organized.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, vaguely remembering Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, the the book, and I'm picturing you tinkering with your bike and fixing it up as kind of a metaphorical journey that maybe in your case occurred before you even got the bike on the road have you ever taken a journey like this before? Like, is this the first time you kind of set out on your own and just went or had you done maybe smaller trips before that, that kind of felt like a prelude to this?
1: Yeah, I think I wore myself, warmed myself up. Like I said, I got the bike when I was 24. And I think that weekend that I bought it, I drove from Canmore, Alberta to Vancouver. I think like driving on the highway was one of the first places that (laughs) that I learned to ride. As far as just taking off when I was 22 years old, when once again, the price of oil was was really bad and there, we, everyone was out of work, you know, I knew things would recover and I thought, well, heck, I have just a little bit of money saved. I might as well spend that time waiting on a sandy beach. So I headed to Brazil for six months and learned Portuguese, had a lovely Brazilian girlfriend and spent my time learning capoeira, which is like their, their martial arts, their national martial art. So yeah, I, you know, I work really hard and I, and it takes a toll on me. And so it's it's just been sort of my custom, I suppose, to take long stints off by myself and sort of reflect on things. And, and I guess you could say heal.
0: Let's talk about that. And, and let's first describe maybe some of the details of the trip. Tell us in general terms, where did you start? Where did you end up? How many miles did you drive? And how long did it take you?
1: Well, I did it in two legs. So I left from Vancouver, Canada, I think in late February, set off on the road. I worked my way down the West Coast to LA, where I visited some friends, jutted across to San Antonio, Texas, because my bike wasn't doing very well. <laughs> <laughs> I said that I repaired some of it, but definitely not all of it. I met some friends there and whipped my bike into shape and worked my way through the center of Mexico into Monterrey, handled some issues there. Yeah, I spent a couple months in in Mexico City. I, I, I sort of paused the leg, of, the first leg of my trip in Costa Rica after eight months. I don't recall how many miles it was, but... I was having some difficulties business-wise in, in, in Canada, and I needed to just sit down for a month, wait till things sort of leveled out, and then come up and, and deal with things. Perhaps leveled out isn't, isn't the right word for it, but I needed to spend a month down in Costa Rica before I returned home. After eight months on the road and you know, trying to hash through the things that I wanted to hash through, I was, you know, I was pretty tired at that point. Dealing with different cultures and the language barrier and a bike that would break every at least once every country was, was quite taxing on me. So I came back up to Canada, I stored my bike in Costa Rica, which actually was a cool thing to do. And i would go back up to work on the drilling rigs in Northern Alberta. And so because we'd work 20 days on 10 days off, I might take a hitch off, or I just fly down to Costa Rica on my days off, grab my bike and zip all around the country, ripping through creeks and seeing all these different places. And it was a nice reset while I was working in, in that cold, bitter winter.
0: You eventually made it to the tip of the South American continent, right?
1: It did. Yeah. So after that long pause, I went and got my bike back. And what a ride that was just, just getting the darn thing out of customs, because there's pieces of paper that, that you're supposed to have when you ride down there, but I lost them because I'm, I'm, I can be quite disorganized. <laughs> and uh, so I spent three or four days talking to different lawyers and, and the people at customs to try and get my bike back. And eventually they just wanted me to get out of there and get out of their hair. So they gave me the bike back. So I started on the trip again. The second leg was ten months. I eventually made it down to the tip of South America in uh, a little town called Ushuaia. So that's like the southern, southern tip. Drove my bike back up to Buenos Aires. And I kind of had a choice. I was either going to drive up into Brazil and leave my bike there because I didn't have the money. And I don't think the bike had the longevity. Or I could throw it on an airplane for 500 bucks, ship it to L.A., and then drive it back the rest of the way and keep the bike. Keep the bike for however long I choose to. And so that's what I did. I I shipped it back and flew to L.A. and met it there. And and had a little trip back home.
0: So I'm listening to you talk about this trip. This was not like an easy, smooth sailing down the roads to South America. I mean, there are multiple interruptions. Clearly there are multiple issues with the bike. You're stopping in the middle to go back and work for a little bit. What did you think you were gonna accomplish when you set off to do this ride? And kind of now in retrospect, did you get there?
1: Well, I, oh man, what did, I, what did I think I was going to accomplish? I don't think I was that cognizant. I think it was just kind of like something was pushing me ahead. Yeah, it's funny. I, I met like a really successful gentleman in Chile, just south of the Atacama Desert, I don't, Santiago, I think, the city of Santiago. Him and I decided to ride together and he was in his 50s and he, he's a successful business person and it was really nice to ride with him. We'd ride each day like long days, because man, that guy could push, and he'd sit me down and he'd make me drink scotch, scotch and smoke cigars, and it sounds great, but I really don't <laughs> like scotch, and I really don't like cigars. <laughs> but he made me do it, and we had uh, great talks, and he taught, taught me how he you know you know built his wealth and and asked about my life and whatnot, and we got down to the we got down to Uswaya and we sat on a bench, and it was like end of the world kind of thing, and we sat there smoking our cigars and, and drinking our scotch and, and he said something really nice to me like you know, he's got a lot of experience and he was able to pack it all into this one little piece of advice. And he suggested that, that, you know, like finishing a large objective or, or, or life goal like that, you know, I, I acquired some really unique life experiences. And my job at that point, finishing the trip was to understand what I learned and use it to sort of launch me into the next portion of my life. And so that, that really got me thinking. And that was, that was a fantastic little, little cherry on top. And yeah, and and I learned a whole bunch of things that are that are still that are still with me today, and and I'm sure we'll get into it. As
0: about to say, let's jump into those things you learned about yourself. You and I have talked about this before. You learned something quite interesting, in my opinion, about what you do when you're in a situation and you're not sure how to move forward. Talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I kept running into such circumstances where I had no idea how the heck to get out. Whether that was me broken down on the side of the road or in trouble with the police or, or lawyer, or whatever, like all sorts of things. And the most apparent one, the one that really stood out to me was, was I was in like a small mountain town in Southwestern, no, probably central, maybe Western Colombia, And I was staying at an English, at a, at a Spanish school and I parked my darn bike outside the Spanish school for, for an hour and a half. And when I got back down there, my license plate was gone. They ripped the darn thing right off my bike. I, was, <laughs> I thought they took it off and then put the bolts back in. And I was just kind of left there a little bit stranded. Luckily, I had a place to stay. So I had a bit of a home base, so a little bit established, which is the most important thing. But I started wondering what the heck I should do. So I started, to, I started to get to know people in the in the neighborhood. Some of the teachers were really accommodating. They'd walk around town with me, sort of asking different businesses about my about my license plate. You know, we went to the local school and suggested to the teachers, if they heard anything about license plates that like one of the kids stole them, then maybe I could get like a bit of a line on that. Walked around to different businesses, asked different parents if they, if they knew of a, <laughs> of a license plate. And I, and I dropped by a mechanic's office or a mechanic shop and told them about the whole circumstance. And what he suggested was I, I rent a spot or an advertisement on the local radio station. And because this is only a town of four or 5,000 people, I don't even know, very small, they only have one radio station. And so what a great idea that was. So we walked up up the street to the radio station and we talked to the lady out front. I think it was $70 for a recording to play four times a day for, I believe, four days or seven days. I don't recall which.
0: Let me interrupt you for a moment, just because I think so people understand without a license plate, you were kind of stuck, right? So it wasn't like you could just take (laughs) off and move on without the license plate. You couldn't really leave the country,
1: right? Yeah. So without a license plate, I couldn't go anywhere. You know, like being on a foreign motorcycle and a foreigner in general, you're pretty pretty vulnerable to well, police and border and whatnot. And your greatest defense against corruption and police is your paperwork. So long as all your paperwork is just right, your VIN number is good, you can save yourself a ton of headaches. So I was effectively stranded because I couldn't cross the border without a plate. I couldn't really do anything. So I talked to the Minister, Ministry of Transit, see if I could get another motorcycle plate made up for me. That was a bit of a dead end because they needed I don't even know what they needed. It was a dead end <laughs> with the Ministry of Transit. I talked to some counterfeiters to see if I could counterfeit a motorcycle plate. That was a dead end because they didn't have the colors or the font. So I was kind of left there, you know, with my palms turned up because I didn't it, it looked like it was spelling the end of my motorcycle trip. So that's when we walked around town and asked different people around town whether or not they'd heard anything about this motor, about this plate. And then we got to the mechanic and he suggested the advertisement at the radio station. So basically the advertisement was who I was, what my plate number was, that I was in this town along this journey and I really needed that plate in order to continue it. And I also offered a $50 USD reward for the return of my plate. The reason I chose the $50 USD is because it was probably worth a lot more than the souvenir of a of a just a random license plate and maybe it was just enough that people started talking about it too. So it was playing on the radio for 4 days. I could even hear it on the radio. <laughs> The people in the barbershop were talking about it. You know, the, the the people in the coffee shops. Seven days later, I think. Yeah, seven days later, I was getting ready to to drive into Medellin with a cardboard license plate to see if there was anything that they could do. Because I didn't want this to spell the end of my motorcycle trip. And that's when the phone rang. And so sure enough, two girls with my license plate had my, had my plate. They brought it into the, the radio station. I got in there. And the lady really liked me. She was really sympathetic to my, to my circumstance. And the girls walked in and they started yelling at each other. And I was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) All I wanted was that license plate. So I'm trying to dampen things down and just get the darn thing. I negotiated with the terrorists and I gave them my $50 and I got my license plate back. So what I found really interesting about that, there was, I guess there was two reasons why that was a big deal for me. One being like all these difficulties that I'd experienced, I've been tackling them by myself, Right. And this one in particular, I put up on social media, I, like I sat down by my bike and I had my camera. And I said, like, look at this circumstance. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I gave updates and it was really, I don't know, it's kind of like an act of faith, like to just, you know, my friends and family were wondering what was going on. And what was, what was really cool about it is it, it worked out and it, it worked out in a way that I can never could have predicted.
0: When we talked about this before, you said something to the extent of, if you just waited long enough, a solution would come. Is that something you kind of learned on this trip?
1: Yes, you're right. And this is the most obvious of the, of the circumstances that I found whenever I ran into issues with my bike, or like I said, with police or lawyers or whatever, I found myself like when you ride your, your motorcycle is kind of like your everything, I guess. And it's kind of a nerve wracking experience. Having an old ratty bike being your, your, your solid ground. But when your bike breaks or you lose license plate or something like that, it's like, it's like the floor, floor falls out of you and you got nothing to grab onto, right? And it's a terrible feeling. And if you have a little bit of money, oftentimes you can buy your way out of it, whether it's a plane ticket or a bus ticket to the city. But I found if you just sit there in that, that sort of disheartening emptiness eventually something will come to you. And whether it's the right answer, or not, you don't really know. And most often than not, it's not. But if you sit there long enough, eventually you'll, 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 a solution will come to you. And I say solution will come to you because I actually don't, it's almost as though the solution is a little bit beyond your comprehension and, and, and it actually does come to you from somewhere else. So I found that, like a, I found that a really interesting insight into life. And, and once I learned it, I, I'd realized that I'd heard it over and over and over again in different books and podcasts and movies. It's like an underlying truth that, that sort of characterizes life.
0: You mentioned the word faith. I think when we were talking about this, the faith that things would work out. And I don't miss the fact that you kind of took off on this journey with, in your own words, that ratty bike, part of you had to realize that this was not going to be an easy journey, right? You had to kind of know that this bike was going to break down. You were going to run into issues. Do you think you were cognizant of that? And I almost wonder if that was on purpose, like if that was part of that movement to faith that you eventually learned to have in yourself and, and this idea
1: that things would work out. Yeah, well, I've always been a glutton for punishment. And I don't <laughs> think you, you don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't set foot on the rigs and at least spend 10 years on it unless you, you, you kind of have that in you, right? And it's, you know, like another, it's another one of those truths that it's the difficulties in life that, that really shape who you are. And that's something that I've sort of held of great value. And you know, it's also it's also something that young men and well young people in general yearn for. And it's just, I don't know, sometimes you just gotta take that first step forward out of faith and then deal with all the consequences later. Cause like if I knew what it was gonna be like and I and I really I, I really thought about it, I don't know if I would I don't know if I would have gone on it. It's funny, the first leg of my trip, people said that I was crazy, but I, I kind of would shoot back jokingly saying that no, no, I was just dumb. <laughs> But the second leg, I knew exactly what I was getting into. And for whatever reason, I just, I, I got after it again. And I, I encountered so many difficulties in, in Central America that I didn't even know what the heck I'd, I I couldn't imagine it being worse in, in, in South America. And sure enough, I ran into just just as many issues, just different through the rest of my trip.
0: Did your trip teach you anything about wealth and money? I mean, this is the Earn and Invest podcast. We're a financial podcast, but often with episodes like this, we talk about things that go much further than your finances. But you mentioned the gentleman who you smoke cigars with and drink scotch and he taught you a little bit about his version of wealth. Do you have any take homes about money that you learned from this trip?
1: Oh boy. I don't know about any that are appropriate to this podcast. <laughs> I mean, I found out that it was worth a whole lot less than I thought it was. Yeah, which was something that I I actually wasn't I wasn't looking forward to because I kind of figured it would. Yeah, it's it's really changed my changed my perspective on things and and understood the the importance of utilizing money to to facilitate experiences in life.
0: Dive more deeply into that. You said money isn't worth as much as you thought it was. What does that mean?
1: Oh, well, man, I worked so hard and it was it's such a difficult industry to be in, in oil and gas and to hold on to the money as well. That when I left I had like a nice cushion and and some money saved up and you know, I was kind of holding on to it for dear life. Like, yeah, I was just afraid of losing it because then I kind of felt like everything that I'd done to build it would have been worthless to just kind of let it fall away but to do something like that trip you know it's kind of it's kind of like a pillar in my life it's it's, it's created a really solid foundation and whenever I talk to other people who've done fantastic things in their life I, I've done something fantastic as well it might be in a completely different domain, but but utilizing that that money to to facilitate an experience like like I had was worth everything and more.
0: Did you feel like you had to make money on the road? Did you ever do odd jobs or work in restaurants or anything just to make some cash while you were on your way?
1: No, that was my trip back home where I spent eight months a year working again. I didn't have the skills that you folks talk about on this podcast. <laughs> Only since then have I have I learned <laughs> of your ways, and so so now the way I navigate life and finance is completely different. But that was kind of a it was a, a frivolous way of spending my money i suppose
0: you mentioned that the way you manage money today is different than you used to in fact you were jokingly say kind of the things we talk about on this podcast are more in line with what you do than what you used to and i was wondering if this trip was responsible at all for that or is that a completely separate journey your financial journey
1: it is a separate journey but it will impact my future and the future decisions that i make about life you know i ha- i have a new respect for pipe dreams. (laughs) Yeah. And what it is to sort of create goals in your life. And as you navigate life, these, these goals kind of get shifted around. Like you might say the motorcycle trip was sitting at the, at the back burner for quite some time. And then my mortgage was up front. My job was up front. My personal relationship with my girlfriend was up front. And then as, as the job kind of moved aside and then I lost the girlfriend, eventually what was sitting in front of me was this, was this motorcycle. And and everything that I sort of built up and up until that point was was pointed at that motorcycle. So as I sort of move forward, I have my own ideas and my own dreams again. Some of them are family, and some of them are you know a little more selfish than family. But I'll be leveraging the tools now in personal finance to to sort of achieve those priceless things. Like like what the things that I want to do won't make me money. They're they're going to cost me money. But but in my opinion, they'll they'll lead to a fulfilling life.
0: It's funny because it sounds like that motorcycle was really at a pivot point in your life and almost you couldn't move forward until you got on that thing and took your trip. It sounds like it kind of, I wouldn't say it was a hurdle, but it was something that kept on calling to you. And and maybe you didn't feel like you could move on and, until you went and did it.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, what are you going to do with your life if you don't chase after the things you want to do? I don't think I would have been able to move on and and chase other fantastic things quite as well or hard or with as much heart if I just left that such an, like such an important objective to the side.
0: We're talking with John Timmons who bought a 2003 Kawasaki KLR 650 motorcycle and rode that bike thousands of miles on a journey that would both span years as well as continents. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G and this is the earn and invest podcast Are you exhausted by not only trying to figure out what to invest in, but how to invest? That's why I'm telling people about an app that I'm really excited about from Public.com. That's right. On Public.com, you can invest with any amount of money. In fact, you can invest in $1,000 stocks with just $1.00. It's really cool. The ability to buy slices of shares offers more flexibility on what you can add to your portfolio. And what's more important is you can invest in companies you believe in. On public.com, you can choose from thousands of stocks and ETFs to grow your portfolio. They curate stocks with themes so you can navigate the market the way you see the world. You can get started with as little as $1, and you'll even get a free slice of stock up to $50 when you join public.com. Just go to public.com EAI to download the app and sign up today. This is valid for U.S. residents only 18 and older. Subject to account approval, see public.com disclosures. This is not investment advice. We are back with John Timmons. He rode his motorcycle from Alberta all the way to the tip of South America and then made his way back. John, tell us a little bit about the people you met on the journey. Did you learn anything about humanity?
1: Yeah, I did. I think I learned a lot about what it is to be wealthy and how the world is kind of poetic and how it distributes it. So in Canada, if you wind up broken down on the side of the road, typically you have enough money to call AAA, CAA, or whatever the heck you have. You can be whipped back into shape, and and you're on your way quickly and self-sufficiently. Okay, so when I started my trip, my biggest fear was breaking down in the desert. And I was driving through the mountains of Mexico, and I approached like a toll checkpoint or a police checkpoint. I don't recall which. As I was rolling up to the the booth, they have speed bumps to make sure people don't blow right through. And I heard a as my, yeah. as my tire popped and then a bang as, as I hit the darn speed bump. So I rolled up to the, to the, to, to the, to the person in the bo- booth, I looked down and I saw that my tire was flat and I said, Oh, problema. And then he looked down and he says, Oh yeah. <laughs> so I paid him my 17 pesos. And then he told me to park off right beside the building. So I drove up to the side of the building and sure enough, you know, everyone was really curious what was going on. I start peeling, peeling my bags apart, pulling my tools out thinking that I just have a flat tire. I pull my rim off and I take a look and I crack my rim. And so when you crack a rim, it's a showstopper. There's nothing you can do, right? And so the guys at the, at the, at the checkpoint saw this. And, and what they did is they, they grabbed their van and drove me into the little, little town next to it. So it was like, you know, half hour drive in, I had my rim in my hand. They were taking me down to different mechanic shops, trying to find, it, trying to find someone to fix it. But because it was an aluminum rim, it's, it's really tough to weld unless you have the right tools. And so basically, they just dropped me off at, the, at a hotel Downtown, And I sat there and was thinking about what I had done. My bike was sitting off at the, at the toll checkpoint. And I thought that was the end of it. I thought there's no way I'm ever getting my bike back. And so there I was at the hotel with my rim. And I put a little blip up on Facebook saying like, Hey, this is the circumstance. I posted a picture of my motorcycle and then my broken rim. And it's like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And a friend messaged me. He says like, where are you? And so I, I told him where I said the town. He's like, no, no. Like where, where are you? And so, and so I took a photo of the, of the address. And then I started looking for parts you know, shipped in from the US and it was going to take five or six weeks and like 500 bucks. And I was just kind of disheartened because I did not want to stay in this little town. But while I was looking for parts, it was late in the afternoon. My friend sent the little address to his friend who talked to his friend. And then within two or three hours, I guess every motorcycle club and gang and enthusiast in this state knew who I was, where I was, (laughs) and what my problem was. (laughs) So two motorcycles rolled up in the front, in the front entrance of my, of my, uh, of this hotel, and I had no idea what was going on, right? But they were looking at their phones, looking up, looking at the phones, looking at me. And then they pointed at me and they're like, You. And I was, you know, taken <laughs> back, right? And then they show me this picture. They're like, Is this you? Is this your problem? And they're speaking Spanish here, right? And I'm like, Yeah, well, how the heck did you get a hold of this? And, and so once they found out it was me, they called a friend who, who spoke broken English. His name was Osmar. So Osmar came by with his motorcycle, with, sorry, with his pickup truck. And I think he, and so he owned a funeral business where they sold caskets. So he had, it was an old diesel truck and it had two gears and uh, he rolled up and asked what the whole circumstance was. And so once they found me, there was this like enthusiastic motorcycle club in the, in this town. I think it was called Angeles de la Costa, angels of the coast. So they rolled up, I think three or four bikes rolled up. They started creating a plan. They're like, where's your bike? What's the problem? And I told them all these things and they're like, okay, so we're going to get your bike. And so I hop into the, I hop into the truck with them. And the motorcycles follow en route, and we drive out to this checkpoint. And by this time, the sun is set. Me and Osmar hop out of the, the truck. They all park the bikes and they're all leaning on the truck, all, all like excited for this. You know, it's like a Friday <laughs> night, and they got nothing else to do. And this white guy's in, in town with his broken motorcycle. So we go talk to the guy with the shotgun, explain the whole situation, and then he gives us the head nod. To get the bike and get out of there, and so Osmar waves over all of his friends, and six or eight guys walk over there. They all pick up a corner of my bike, pick up all the pieces, and load it in the back of, in the back of the truck. So now we drive back to Ariaga. and this is all happening way before I know what's going on because they're all talking to each other, but I don't really understand. So we drive into town. They say, so one of the guys says that he's got a place that he, uh, a space for it at his place. So they take the. So I say kind of agree because I didn't have a place for it or I didn't know. So they take off with the bike. And then they sit and we hang out and we drink Coca-Cola. And cause I guess these people didn't drink. I was the only <laughs> one with the beer <laughs> and, and exchange stories. And, and it was a great evening. So I, I went to bed that night wondering what the heck happened. I thought for sure. My mo- I thought because I'm Canadian, I just kind of assumed that, I don't know. I, I guess I had all this, these nightmares in my head about what was going to happen. So I thought my bike was gone. The next day they asked if I wanted to go to the next town over. And I kind of like tentatively agreed. I was like, okay, let's go to the next town over. Cause every, every Saturday night these folks and the people from the next, next town over get together and they have like a, they go for dinner and have drinks and all that stuff. And so we're, I'm driving on the back of this guy's bike at nine o'clock in the evening. No one knows where I am, who I'm going with or anything. And we're, and I'm, you know, of course panicking well for, for obvious reasons. So we roll up to the next town. We, there's, I think four of us or six of us. And then we roll up and I think there's another four, two or four bikes in the next town over. We drive down this dirt road with no lights on either side, just abandoned cement buildings. And then there's one little light at the very end of it. And We roll up to that. All the, pike, all the bikes parked with their headlights shining at the door. And they're like, okay, let's go. And they can tell I'm scared. So they start hooting and hollering <laughs> to scare me more. <laughs> and they drive up and I feel like I'm going to get murdered. I feel kind of ashamed to have these feelings in retrospect. And so I, I, I walk up to the door with the one bare bulb shining on me and the guys around with the motorcycles. And there's, they brought me to a mechanic and they brought me to his house and he's holding my rim. And so they explained to me that throughout that afternoon, everyone in town was scouring the state for motorcycle rims for me. And they found a Honda rim. It wasn't quite the right size, but it was a little bit narrow and it was going to work. And so they asked if I wanted to do it. And I was like, heck yeah. And so, you know, everyone's excited. They take my rim and then we go out for tacos. You know, they take 50 pictures and I felt I I felt like I made like, oh, like I made 50 friends. It was a lot of fun. So what turned out? To be only like a, a one week, week and a half detour, I thought it was going to take me five weeks. Man, these guys were so accommodating. One of them had a mango orchard, so he gave me 40 pounds of mangoes that I, <laughs> that I, that I inhaled over you know, two days or three days. They, like, one of them, they just, they just made sure I was fed and, and, and comfortable. They gave me ochata, which is like their, their, their local drink that their mom made. Took me out for dinner. They just were like the most accommodating people in the world. It, it really gave me a lesson in humility. Cause you know, I always thought that I was kind of a generous person, but man, I got nothing on those guys, you know, they're not struggling, but you know, they, they keep their bikes running in, in resourceful ways. And I'm taking this, this huge trip where almost all my problems can be resolved with money. And they just took it upon themselves to, to make sure I was comfortable and well-fed and sent me on my way in a safe, in a safe manner. And like, oh my God, like it's, I still choke up with thinking about the generosity of them
0: kind of reminds me of El Camino de Santiago. If you're familiar with El Camino, it's the trip from the French Pyrenees to Santiago de Compostela. And it's like people take months and months to walk the trip. And inevitably, people who are on this walk will tell you that they come upon problems that they don't know how to solve. And the saying is the Camino always provides. And as I'm listening to your story, it seems kind of the same, right? Like you find yourself in these crazy situations and yet the road provides. And in this case it did for yeah. you.
1: Yeah. The night before I left the, the guy who's heading the club, he's like, you know, comes over with his patches and vest and all this stuff. And he has a little bell in his hand. And then he texted me a story that I translated into English and it was something to uh, the point of the story is like, so long as you have this bell on your motorcycle, the, like, it'll still keep the demons at bay. And it's, it's like a classic motorcycle story. And so we spent 15 minutes, you know, finding the right spot on the bike and tied the bell to it and took pictures with it. And it was just like a really nice, like it was a really important moment for him. And and it turned out to be a really important moment for me when I understood what it, what it signified. The bell stayed with me the whole, the whole trip. And I think it finally shook off when not long after I got home.
0: Did you ever feel like you were in danger when you were on the road? I mean, it sounds like the opportunity was there for you to get into some really hairy situations.
1: Yeah. My reflexive answer is yes, for sure. But danger is, I don't know, man. That's a really, really difficult one to parse out. When I was in the US, when I was just like, I was really nerve-wracked about crossing into Mexico. And I was kind of like, I was at the border, kind of asking local people like, hey, do you go across the border? You know, like, what's it like? And this, that, and the other. And the, the looks that I would get were like, no, like, I do not go, pra- go past that border. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying. And I found that, you know, I went to Monterrey and I told them I was going to Mexico City. And they're like, oh no, Mexico City is really dangerous. And I got to Mexico City. Holy smokes, I came from Monterrey. And the general theme of my trip is wherever I was coming from was wicked dangerous. Wherever I was was pretty darn secure. And wherever I was going was was going to be trouble as well. And I found it didn't matter whether it was a local person or authority or travelers or what. I I don't know what to draw from from that experience because it seems to be human universal that your domain of understanding is what's safe. And anything beyond that is 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 perilous and and people made sure that I understood that where I was going was going to be dangerous, but man, over and over again, I was just met with fantastic people. Okay. The, the 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 most trouble that I had was from the police and they didn't give me that much trouble. They just wanted a bit of money.
0: Any regrets? I mean, when you look back at your trip now in hindsight, anything you wish you did differently?
1: Only one thing. <laughs> I was so lonely by the end of my trip. Oh my God. I don't know whether I just want to be at home, but I, when I was sitting on that bench with the, with the nice gentleman that rode with me, I was on my phone and I shouldn't have been on my phone. You know, I wasn't on it for the whole time, but I shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been doing that.
0: We live in a society where we have all these inputs. Our phone is a, certainly a big, one of them. Social media is too. Social media helped you out, right? You posted yeah. problems and answers appeared. On the other hand, that phone was a distraction as you were sitting there drinking your scotch and smoking the cigars, which you didn't like.
1: Right. <laughs> That's right. I started to like it at the end, but, uh, but initially didn't like it. No, you know, you're absolutely right. Like it's, it's, I don't know, like anything in life, it's, it's how you utilize it. It can be a tool or it can be used to your detriment. You know, that's, that was a small portion of my trip where I slipped up and that's like, that's a small regret, but the one that comes to mind.
0: So let's look now at the John Timmons of today compared to the John Timmons pre-trip.
1: How are you different? Oh, much more confident. And I, I guess I'd hark back to what I said earlier. Well, if, if there's one great thing, one fantastic thing about my trip is I was doing something that was kind of fantastic in its own right. And so no matter where I went, I'd meet fantastic artists or great business people or other people who who kind of threw social norms to the side and pursued something something great. And I had the opportunity to, to co-mingle with them. And that that was special. And it hasn't really stopped. People catch wind of... The trip that I did, they're intrigued, and and oftentimes they want to share something fantastic as well. So it's given me a nice little 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 in to talk to some fantastic people like yourself, and you know, being on something like on the something like this podcast, it's 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 great.
0: Did it change your concept of what you wanted to do for a living? I mean, up to that point, you were working on these hitches on the oil rigs. Talk about what you do now, and did the trip change your ideas?
1: Well, you know, like I was saying, my my time on the rigs was sort of expiring. And I I kind of I overextended myself for, you know, a couple of years just so I could do this motorcycle trip and it was worth it. But no, I I don't want to be out there anymore. It's not really built for me at this point in my life. You know, it'd be tough to do this trip and then and then go back out there. What I really wanted to do, like I actually really want to be with Amberly. And you know Amberly, she was on your podcast a few weeks ago. So I I kind of pointed my life in a direction. Where I sort of reestablish myself in a new career, actually a couple new careers. One where I could work remotely, and then another one working in film, which is actually kind of nice. I, I kind of like it. It's like the it's like the drilling rigs of Vancouver, because you work really long hours, high stress, and good pay. When you work, you work, and then you you have your time off, and you can sort of forget about it. And so yeah, it's 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 time for me to to switch careers and leverage my experiences and and utilize the things in the FI, which is like you know passive income through, through index funds and whatnot. That's, that's going to be my next pursuit. It's the last little while has been really just getting back on my feet and finding myself in a place when I can, where I can really take a good, good shot at things with Amberly.
0: Do you think you could have made those decisions without having done this
1: trip? Nah, no. If I did, I'd make them poorly. Before I left, I was, I was burdened with, with the experiences that I had up until that point. Like if I didn't, if I didn't take the time to deal with them, I just, you know, I'd be, drinking a lot more than I should and more bitter than I should towards life and, and the people around me. And I just, I didn't like the person that I was turning into and, and you didn't have to look too, you don't have to look too far ahead. If you're in an industry, you don't have to look too far ahead to see where you're going. Right. And you can be as resilient as you want, but no matter what your, your surroundings have an impact on you and and you are beholden to them to a great extent. And, and I just, yeah, I just needed to leave. <laughs>
0: Do you think you spent a lot of time on the road hashing through these things that happened to you before you left on the trip, or was it more the going out and living that helped resolve some of the things that were
1: bothering you before you left? One fear that I have, you know, when you're young, you keep yourself busy, right? Whether that's with friends and family and going out and work. And one one fear that I have is that I don't is that I won't ha- I won't deal enough of my deal with my issues enough that when I reach the end of my life and I'm forced to sit with myself, I'll, I'll be forced at that point to deal with everything that I've been running from. And that just sounds like a terrifying experience. So when I was, when I was doing, when I was, when I was riding, I was running, but I think because, I think because I was alone and when I'd stop, I'd, I'd be, when I'd stop and pitch my tent night or lay my hammock, I was sitting there with myself. I just kind of forced myself into, into a circumstance where I had to sit and reflect and so, a lot of my trip was was reflecting and journaling.
0: So, looking forward, would you tell other people to take a journey like this? I'm sure people ask you all the time, "Should I do yeah. that? Would it be worth it for me?"
1: I wouldn't be so bold as to say that they should do something, um, but this like a lot of people wonder if they can do it, and that's that's where I like to step in and and absolutely reassure that they can do it, barring some some big some big cognitive disabilities. Or, you know, something like that. Or if they're a complete, complete jerk, mm-hmm. then I, I really don't recommend <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> if I could snap my fingers and take you back to a certain day on your trip, any day, just for 24 hours, where would you go back to? What would you relive again? Oh,
1: oh no one's ever asked me that before. Yeah, okay. It's funny because I guess I'd, I'd go back to one of the more less comfortable times when I was sort of forced to sit in Costa Rica, before I came back the first time I was sitting on the beach in my, in my hammock for, for almost a month. It it was so strange. I'd, I'd go for walks along the beach and these beaches are endless. Like you can can walk for hours and hours and barely see anyone. And I would go and I would just be plagued. (laughs) I just have, I'd be infuriated with these old thoughts from working on the rigs or fights with my girlfriend or my, my flights, fights with my ex. And I'd come back exhausted from being so angry, and I thought, "What a strange experience that I'm in! Like a gorgeous place with no one around but myself, and I, and I chose to be angry." Hmm. And so during that time, I, I would I made a point of spending my day, and I just sit in my hammock and I, and I kind of exist and toil with 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 the problems that I'd been avoiding. It sounds kind of boring. And definitely not as exciting as other portions of my of my trip. But when I was actually forced to sit with myself, that turned out to be some of the most valuable valuable, some of the most valuable time that I spent on the whole trip. And I think I'd go back there just sitting in the hammock.
0: Well, John, I wanted to thank you for coming on Earn and Invest to talk about your adventures. We often talk on this podcast about our financial journeys, but the truth of the matter is our money, our finances really are secondary to our journeys in life, what we experience, what we learn, and how we grow. And listening to your journey, that huge motorcycle trip that you took 31,000 miles or more, really drives home the importance of those personal journeys we take and having the space and time in our life to take them. I've really enjoyed talking with you about your trip, I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you, what's up next in your life, and if people want to contact you or know more, is there any way they can?
1: Mm, what's up next? Okay, well, I get to marry—I get to marry Amberly, and I'm most excited about that. And I think that's the most notable upcoming event in my life. I can't wait. As far as getting a hold of me, my Instagram is Journeyman86. I don't post on there quite so much anymore, not until my next big ordeal. But I frequent there, so if anyone wants to get a hold of me, questions to ask, they can reach me there. That's journeyman86.
0: This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank John Timmons. That's a wrap. Hey, everybody, just a few housekeeping items. I just wanted to remind you that we have an active Facebook group at earnandinvest.com Facebook, where you can engage in conversations similar to the ones we have here on each episode. But this is going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Come talk about personal finance, current events. You name it, we discuss it there. I also wanted to bring up that my friend Jillian Johnsrud's book, Fire the Haters. We interviewed her here on the Earn and Invest podcast. Her book is now available for order. Go to jillianjohnsrude.com or look it up on Amazon. It's Fire the Haters. And last but not least, my partner, Joe Salcihai, has book, Stacked, is coming out soon. You can get it on pre-order. Just look it up on Amazon. It's an excellent book, and I can't wait to have you all read it.
1: (laughs) Cool. Well, I'm glad this was recorded and not live.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, we'll. I'll be like I said. I'll be able to edit parts and put other parts together, and we'll make it sound nice and, and really clear. Anything you feel like we didn't talk about? Anything you're like, wow? There's this big thing that happened that we didn't get a chance to mention.
1: No, um, I guess the only thing that I could think of, I well, I got like a long string of a, of a story from Colombia to that. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I guess there is. I, I spent. Yeah. Tell
0: it now. I'll make it the after show. Hmm.
1: So go ahead and just tell. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so I, I barely hobbled to, to Ushuaia. Hey, (laughs) by the time I got there, my spokes were breaking. Um, I had like a leaky, leaky seal that was between my, I had a leaky, a leaky oil seal. I forget exactly which one. And, um, I went to Rio Grande and I stopped by a mechanics place and he says, okay, this is the seal that you need. He says, my sister, she's been been waiting for the same one for six months. So we're running into some issues. And so I, I thought, oh my god! So the the older gentleman he rode on without me. He was going to Africa. He went up to Brazil and then across to Africa. And um, the mechanic, his name was Facundo, and he offered to 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 house me for for a little while. So I stayed with this mechanic. We put my bike up on the on the stand and we started pulling it apart and rebuilding it. And I just so happened to meet someone from Colombia, and she was going to Antarctica, and she was from LA, and so. So one interesting thing about, uh, about Argentina is it's a socialist economy, and they don't really have much for Kawasaki parts down there. So I ordered up some parts. Her name was Lauren, the, the, the lovely woman from, from Los Angeles. I ordered up a seal and, in, in LA, two of them actually, and then mm-hmm. I had them shipped right by her house. So she picked them up. She flew down two weeks later. I picked up the seals from her and I rebuilt my motorcycle, like with the, with, like, man, we pulled everything apart Facundo and I, and it was so nice. It was, it was, it was such a great experience staying with him and all of his friends were like, there were young people, but they were so warm. And like, there was no, there was no machismo. There was no asserting themselves. It was just nothing but love. And it, uh, like, again, talk about a humbling experience. It It, it was kind of, kind of comical when i left everyone was clapping like like way to go john go get him get back up to canada they're all excited for me with the trip that i did and all the work that i put on my bike and i drove seven hours and my stater blew so i drove into i drove into um oh, i forget the town i drove into chile and i found a place to camp in someone's backyard and the winter was chasing me so i wasn't sure how much time i had but I, I found a mechanic shop and, and he had a voltmeter and we pulled my pulled my engine apart and found out that the stator was shot. So we ordered one in from Florida. And I had to lay in my tent for six weeks <laughs> in like, you know, zero degree weather. Oh, nice. Waiting for this part. And I'm thinking, like, God, John, like, like it, it, maybe you should just give up on the trip now you made it there. Just just push the bike aside and go home. And for whatever reason I didn't. And I, I stayed there and I, 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 got my stator back in shape or I, I installed the new stator and I, and I went on my way and um, I started backtracking through a lot of the, the similar places that I, the same places that i would come down because there's not that many roads down there. And I met a Brazilian group, a group of Brazilians. And they were enamored with me. They were like all crowded around my bike, checked everything out. And they were down from Brazil and Argentina doing a similar trip, just a little bit shorter. And uh so I rode with them for for a few days, and we were driving up through uh, the Carretera Austral, which is three thousand kilometers of dirt road. But mm-hmm. to get there, we had to go up through places like El Chaltén, and uh, man, like I was running into a lot, lots of difficulty. So in Colombia, I was driving to Medellín, and the air in my the the air in my tire was low, and I hit a big rock, and it bent my rim. And usually you just replace the darn rim. And because I am the way I am, I see the problem. And I think a lot of people do it, but I just kind of put it out of my head. Like if I ignore it, it'll go away. And so by the time I got down, the the spokes had shaken and broken. And there were like, I think I had six broken spokes. And if you have broken spokes on a motorcycle, it can really spell disaster. Mm -hmm. So I was driving up north with 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 the winter chasing us breaking spokes along the way I got into El then and I pulled my bike apart again and I had my rim and I was walking around town asking like does anybody know a welder because at this time I had a steel rim I didn't have an aluminum <laughs> rim that, that the guys from Mexico gave me so I knocked on a barn barn door and the guy opens up like who are you Like, and I, I have my rim there and he's like how did you find me and this is all in Spanish and he looks at my rim and then he's like where are you from and he understands the circumstance and he gets really upset so he starts berating me like Do you know how many, no, there's no resources down here. Winter's coming. You're in trouble. And then he finally like gases himself out. He's like, okay, I think we can do something. (laughs) So I'm like, Yes. So we spent a couple hours brazing the few spokes that I had or like the the few spokes that were broken back into place. And um I threw my bike together, hobbled it together and we eventually went north and I was able to make it back to Buenos Aires. Um and then back home with I still have the busted spokes I won't replace them just cuz it's just a part of my bike now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how vested people were in your success. Like from yes. all these different geographies and all these different points when you hit problems when you hit hurdles, you had this group of vested people who stood up and said, yes, I'm going to do this. Maybe they liked you, they liked your personality, or it was just the right thing to do. And they got emotionally involved in getting you to the next point.
1: Yeah. And that was a big, a big, um, influence on my decision to ship the bike back home, because at that point it was almost not really my bike. Like I spent three grand on it and it took me that far. Like it, it didn't owe me anything, Mm. but a ton of people put their, put their, you know, their sweat into it and their effort and, um, you know, helped me out when I was really vulnerable. And so it's, I kind of have it as a bit of a tribute to the trip and, and everyone else that helped me along the way.
0: Yeah. I I kind of, I'm, I'm visualing you as your bike. Not only were they helping you fix your bike, but they were patching pieces of John together. Uh, yeah, well, which you carried home with you to to move into your future.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's really nice, you know. Like, I think I think if you're, I sort of feel a little bit in in me when I'm sort of existing in my day to day life, and I find somebody who's doing something a little bit extraordinary. It's, it's fun to be a part of it, you know. And I think that's I think that's partly what what accounted for some of the enthusiasm of of the people that I met.
0: Yeah, very cool. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for telling your stories.